Welcome to The Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. This episode starts our second season. In this season, I'll have the occasional episodes in which I interview an expert on a medieval topic. With me today to discuss ghosts and revenants in the Middle Ages is Alex Zawacki. Alex is a lecturer at the University of Göttingen and publishes It's Only Dark, a substack devoted to the spooky, the weird, and the uncanny. After you're done with this episode, I'd highly recommend that you head on over and give it a read. The link is in the show notes. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So since we're talking about ghosts and revenants today, I figure I'll lead off with an introductory question. What precisely do we mean when we refer to a ghost, and what do we mean when we talk about a revenant? It's a good place to start, because to some extent, when we make that dis- that distinction, it's kind of a modern scholarly imposition that the sources themselves don't always make. So the general definition of a revenant, when you're talking about the Middle Ages, is an embodied ghost. So something more like a zombie or a vampire in modern parlance than what we think of a ghost as. Um, So a ghost that is actually physically incarnate in a body and specifically moving around the body that it was buried in. So it's a walking corpse. And that's distinct from most of the other ghosts you get in the Middle Ages. Oftentimes, you do get ghosts that can do things like move physical objects, but they appear and disappear Uh, They're often sometimes described as just images or illusions or phantasms. So they seem to be more like the incorporeal spirits that we usually have in in ghost stories today. Uh, Revenants are specifically walking corpses. But revenant, it should be noted, isn't a term that the medieval sources use. They use a, a, a range of different terms to describe these things, some of which are they use in common with what we would think of as normal ghosts and some of which aren't. But that's the distinction is a revenant is a buried, usually rotting corpse that has, at least in the night and for some period of time, come back to life, is moving around and is causing havoc. That sounds like it would be rather distressing. Yeah, it's usually a serious threat. So one of the things that pops up again and again in medieval accounts of revenants is that they are really dangerous to the whole community. So they very often either appear during times of or seem to cause plagues. So there are a couple of stories, for example, where people are concerned that the exhalations of the corpses, the breath that it's breathing out, are going to cause plague in the town. There's an account from William of Newburgh, for example, who's one of our best sources for medieval revenants, who describes exactly that, that the circulation of air as the corpse moves around the town is going to cause a pestilence. And indeed it does. And most of the town ends up either dying or moving away as a direct result of the plague that this thing brings. So you mentioned that revenants are extremely dangerous. Do these more phantasmal ghosts that you mentioned, do they pose any sort of a similar threat? Not usually. There are accounts of them causing physical harm. So, for example, there's an account of 
what we would think of as a normal ghost who appears to somebody he knew in life, showing that he is suffering in the hereafter, and sort of as an indication of this, as a physical proof of it, a bead of burning sweat falls from his brow and lands on the living man's hand and burns directly through it to show that he is really suffering in the fires of the hereafter. But most of the time, ghosts, when they appear, are messengers from purgatory. Sometimes you get damned spirits that appear, and sometimes, more rarely, you get saved spirits that appear. But most of the time, they're spirits in purgatory, and they're appearing to the living because they have something to ask. They're in purgatory, and the living have the power to help them move on from this stage, either by righting wrongs that the dead committed in life. So you'll see ghosts appearing and say, I cheated this merchant or these monks out of this amount of money. Please repay it to them because I can't move on until that's done. Or because they are requesting what you would normally do for somebody who was in purgatory in the Middle Ages and what you may still do if you're Catholic today, which is things like having masses sung on their behalf, praying for them, giving alms to the poor or to the sick. And those things can help a spirit move on from purgatory. But usually they're appearing to ask for help. Revenants much more rarely have an explicit request like that. Sometimes they seem to just be enjoying being malevolent. So again, to go back to William of Newburgh, he has an account of a character called the Hound's Priest, the Hundeprest, which he was called because he was a priest who in life really enjoyed hunting, which you would do with dogs, and more worldly activities than befits a priest. For example, he had a mistress, and one of the first things he does when he comes back as a revenant is to visit his mistress and physically rip out her eye, which is, of course, horrifying. And sometimes they seem to have no reason whatsoever. So Saxo Grammaticus, who wrote these famous chronicles of semi-legendary Danish history, has a story of a man who died and his best friend vowed to be buried alive with him in his mound. And after a few nights, the dead man comes back to life and first kills and eats the horse that was buried with him and then attacks his friend. And at no point does he speak. He shows no recognition for someone to whom he was deeply bonded in life. It seems that even though his body is moving, not all of him has come back or something has changed in the passage from this world to the next and he's become much more harmful. And that's not really the case with ghosts. You get ghosts with specific requests, with specific needs and specific reasons that they're appearing to the living, which isn't to say that ghosts can't be terrifying when they appear. They usually are, but they have reasons for being there that don't generally involve harming the people to whom they're appearing. So you mentioned that revenants seem to lack that connection to what they were. Would you say that a revenant can be like what we think of as a vampire? Yes. So you can draw a pretty straight line between the kind of vampire that you see in Dracula, for example, to the kinds of revenants that you see in medieval ghost stories. When Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, he was very heavily drawing on then contemporary Slavic folklore. And there's a clear continuity between much of that and the kinds of things that get discussed in the Middle Ages. And especially in the Slavic regions, you can see the same sorts of characteristics appearing again and again. They don't always get described as drinking blood specifically, but for example, there is a collection of Slavic chronicles that describes a, a pastor 
named Mislata, and I'll have to apologize for my pronunciation here, but I believe it's Mislata, who rises from the grave, he wanders around the nearby towns, and he slits people's throats specifically, which seems like it might be drinking blood. And the ways that they deal with these revenants is usually quite similar to the way you would deal with a vampire. So you think about how you get rid of a vampire, you stake them. And we know from accounts of both revenants and from archaeological evidence that this was a thing that people actually did. They would stake them. But staking, when it appears in written accounts, doesn't seem like it's a way of killing the revenant. It seems like it's meant to hold it down in place. And one other thing you see archaeological evidence of is corpses with rocks placed deliberately on top of them, usually around the legs, the wrists, as if to hold them down, and sometimes shoved into the mouth itself, which might be to prevent them from feeding on people. It might be because of what I mentioned before, the belief that their breath spread plague and pestilence. But it follows the same sort of lines. So you would stake them, you would often decapitate them, especially in the Scandinavian sources, and you would usually set them on fire and sometimes dump their ashes or whatever remained of them in water. So broadly similar to the way you would deal with a vampire now, although now we usually focus on stakes, and that's partly due to Dracula. I suspect fire would be fairly effective. Always bring a flamethrower when you're dealing with the undead. That brings another question to mind. What would make a dead person into a revenant? It's not always clear. Sometimes they do appear for reasons similar to ghosts, which is that they have some kind of, we'll call it unfinished business. And sometimes they make specific requests of the living. Other times they just seem to get up and walk around. So there's an account from Brittany, for example, where a man who by all accounts was just a normal family man and good Christian dies. And not long after he does, he was a baker. He gets up, crawls out of his grave, and comes back to work at the bakery. He is found needing bread. And his family is, of course, terrified by this. So at first, they dig up his grave and break his legs to try to stop him from walking. This doesn't work, and so they end up dealing with him in the usual manner. But here, he never speaks. He never makes any communication. And that's often common. They very often don't speak or explain why they're there. The Saxo-Grammaticus example I mentioned, Asveth is the name, or Asveth is the name of the man who came back to life. He never speaks to his to his sworn brother to explain why he's attacking him. The hound's priest, likewise, doesn't give any explanation of why he's attacking his mistress. What his motivations are remain totally unclear. So sometimes we get them coming back and saying, I am in purgatory, I can be redeemed through these specific means, the way a typical ghost might be. But more commonly, they are kind of incoherent and inscrutable. Nobody really understands why they're back or what they want, only that they are causing harm either purposefully or just by their mere presence because they're spreading plague and disease. That sounds like it could be both scary and confusing. That brings me to another question. You've mentioned Saxo Grammaticus and other Scandinavian sources. Do we see any sort of a regional distinction between whether stories of ghosts or revenants are more common? We see a lot of revenants in Scandinavia, and I think the Scandinavian revenants are probably the most well-studied out of any section of Europe, in part because there's an awful lot of them, and in part because they are in sources and texts that people like to read anyway. So a lot of revenant stories are kind of hidden away in chronicles or other texts 
for example, the Slavic vampire stories I recounted are from the Compendium of the Roman and Bohemian Chronicle. Whereas if you've ever read the Icelandic sagas, revenants abound in those. There's a famous example of the Erbrigia saga, which I'm sure I've pronounced incorrectly, where a woman dies and then you get a kind of plague of revenants appearing one after another as each individual member of the farm dies, they appear as a revenant and eventually they have to be legally evicted from it, which is a very odd thing that I believe only occurs in this one specific Icelandic saga. The way they deal with the revenants is not by killing them, not by exercising them in some kind of Christian manner. They hold an eviction court and they kick them all out. So that's something you only see in the Icelandic sources and this one specifically. The Icelandic sources have a lot of recounts of revenants being active in their barrows and usually guarding treasure. And one of the best ways of dealing with those is by not only decapitating them, but by putting their head between their legs. So that kind of thing is very specific to the Scandinavian story. But all elements of the revenants, no one story has all of them, but if you read enough of them spread from Britain to the north to the east, you get a lot of the same ideas and same characteristics appearing again and again with kind of remarkable continuity, not just geographically, but also temporally. There are accounts of Greeks in the Mediterranean region, so quite different from the regions I've been talking about so far, of Greek belief in vampires or revenants with much of the same characteristics that I've discussed so far going on until at least the 1960s. And some evidence that at least in parts of Eastern Europe, it may have continued even later than that and possibly still persists today. And most of these, again, have the same sort of characteristics and the same ways of dealing with them. They have to be burned. They have to be decapitated, sometimes burning them. And often, in fact, burning them isn't enough. Their heart has to be removed before the body will actually catch fire and disintegrate. And this is something you can trace from 12th and 13th century sources all the way up until the 18th and 19th century and possibly into the 20th. I want to circle back around to ghosts because You'd mentioned that ghosts would often come from purgatory with unfinished business. That leaves me curious about the larger picture of how well did stories of ghosts and revenants get squared with Christian teaching? It's a good question, and it kind of depends on which Christian, where, and when you're talking about. Uh, so St. Augustine, for example, was very firm in his belief that ghosts were not a thing. The dead, once dead, either went on to heaven or went on to hell, but whatever the case, they did not return to the living. And he was kind of remarkable in this respect because he was writing in a late antique, so the end of the classical period, uh, where belief in ghosts was very widespread, or belief in visitation from the dead, at least, was very widespread. And much of that persisted in Christianity. And he was insistent that there really is no permeability between the living and the dead, except sometimes in the cases of the saints or really remarkable and holy people. But for the most part, he rejected the idea that ghosts would ever visit the living. And one of the common ways in which they were believed to do so at the time he would, in which he was writing, and probably still today, was in dreams. So he writes of many people he knew who believed that the dead had visited them in dreams. And he acknowledges that sometimes these are really remarkable events and that they can communicate useful information, 
but he rejected the idea that it was actually the souls of the deceased coming back. So he gives an example of somebody he knew who was trying to understand one particular difficult passage of literature. And he slept on it. And in his dream, he saw St. Augustine, who, of course, was then alive, visiting him and explaining this difficult passage. St. Augustine, in fact, again, was alive and sleeping himself quite soundly some distance away and had no knowledge that he had visited this person in dreams. So St. Augustine doesn't exactly understand how such things can occur, but he rejects the idea that it was his soul visiting this person in death, and by the same token, rejects the idea that when you dream of someone who has passed on, it is actually them visiting you. Meanwhile, Gregory the Great, who was a pope some time after St. Augustine, wrote a really remarkable collection known as the Dialogues, where he included a number of ghost stories, apparently uncritically, and that gave ghosts in the Christian tradition a lot more cachet than they might have otherwise had, because he was, of course, a pope. He became a saint. He wasn't that long after St. Augustine. He died in the early 7th century, so about 170 years after St. Augustine did. And he recounted stories of people meeting ghosts who said that they had some form of unexpurgated sin or that they required something from the living masses, for example, and that they would then pass on. Purgatory as a noun starts appearing towards the end of the 12th century, and you get the doctrine around it much more solidified at that point. The idea that if you die, if you're good enough to get into heaven, but probably not good enough to get in immediately, you will have this sort of intermediary period where you're not on your own. Other people can help you by prayers and alms and so on, as I've mentioned. And that becomes a very useful way of explaining why ghosts can appear and where they're coming from. And sometimes you get ghosts saying that they are doing their purgation in a specific place. So for example, there is a Middle English text called the Gast of Guy, which is a translation of an older Latin text that purports to be an actual firsthand account of a ghost visitation in which a ghost appeared to a woman, to his wife, I say appeared, but actually he only manifested as a sound and a voice, never in physical form. He appeared to his wife in their bedroom where they committed some unspecified sin, presumably sexual. And he informs the priests who's interrogating him that he has to do part of his purgation in that bedroom. And that is something that you can find elsewhere in Christian literature of the era, that wherever you have committed your greatest sin, there at least part of the time, you will be condemned to atone for it. One of the few examples of a really terrifying ghost in Arthurian literature is from a medieval text called The Tears of Arthur, where you see exactly that. There is a ghost who appears wrapped in her burial shroud with cloying darkness around her, her eyes glowing like coals, her jaws chattering, set about with serpents and toads that are gnawing upon her. And she rises up from this lake and she tells Guinevere, who turns out to be her daughter, that she is condemned to do her purgatory in that lake specifically. Oh my, that is terrifying. And because of ghosts being so terrifying, one thing I've noted is that Oftentimes on TikTok or other social media, people will talk about burning sage to drive away ghosts or evil spirits. In movies, the cross and garlic repel vampires. For the benefit of our listeners, I'll note that such charms are called apotropaics. Did medieval people have apotropaics against ghosts or the undead? And if so, what were they? 
I'm not aware of any. Normally, what you would do if you were a medieval person who saw a ghost would be to go and get the priests. There's actually a great account from the 17th century in England of a Protestant family who has a poltergeist occurrence, and their priests suggestion is to go and find a Catholic priest, since this is more their kind of thing than the Anglicans. So I'm not aware of any specific medallions or methods of driving away ghosts, except the ones that you could possibly anticipate. So normally when a priest is dealing with something supernatural of this kind, one of the first things they'll reach for will be holy water and holy relics, the cross, a consecrated host, that sort of thing. But they're not really, for the most part, trying to drive ghosts away. After all, the belief at this point, after the 12th century, when we have a clear doctrine of purgatory, we've sort of resolved the idea that ghosts can come back, contra Augustine, who believed that they couldn't. The belief is that they're back for a reason, and they're usually not evil. They are souls who are not damned. They're in purgatories. They haven't attained heaven yet, but they will eventually, and it's sort of our duty as the living to help them there. So normally what a priest will do is bring these sorts of things with him, but then he'll try to find how he can help the ghost in order for it to pass on. Revenants are a much different story. Revenants don't really occupy any kind of clearly marked out orthodox position. And one of the things you find in many of the sources that discuss them is a real sense of discomfort in explaining how these things could happen. So ghosts kind of made sense. Again, Augustine didn't believe they could come back. Some Christian writers also didn't. Others did, but there was at least a framework for explaining how they could. They are in purgatory. They're coming back to ask for help. How something could animate a corpse, and not just that, but then use that corpse to cause physical harm to the living, sometimes to the point of death, is much more difficult to square with Christian doctrine, really of any form, than ghosts are. So you see, if you read the medieval sources on this, a lot of different potential explanations and a lot of discomfort. So sometimes you get the sense that these things are happening by the special dispensation of God. Sometimes that it isn't really happening at all in the sense that the corpses moving around are either illusions caused by the devil or are demons possessing corpses and moving them. They aren't actually the soul of the dead person in there. But that's something that even individual writers can go back and forth on. Theotmar of Merseburg first proposes one solution, and then in a later text that he writes probably a few years later, goes back and says, actually, I think I was wrong about that. Several writers say something to the effect of, look, I'm just reporting what people have told me. If it's theologically unsound, I apologize. I'm doing the best I can. William of Newburgh, for example, he writes that he would not believe these things, that the dead could walk, if he hadn't had so many people telling him about it. And he seems really disconcerted with how this is exactly happening. He gives a couple different possible explanations. And the fact that he can't find any records of this occurring in the past. He says that he's looked through old books and he's never found any accounts of anything like this happening. So there isn't really a good framework for explaining these things, which means there isn't really a good framework for warding them off or dealing with them. And so in the sources, you see a couple of different methods. The common method, as I mentioned before, is some form of physical dismemberment, burning them, beheading them, often some combination of the two. In some stories, you have lay people telling the church, we should burn these things. 
and the church trying to find a way of dealing with them that doesn't involve sort of physical crudity, but has some sort of theological justification behind it. And so one thing they might do to stop the dead from walking or ward off these spirits or settle the event for good is write a, a scroll absolving the dead person from sins they committed in life and putting it physically in the tomb with the dead. So again, it still involves digging up the corpse or opening the tomb and actually making contact with the body. I've heard that there's archaeological evidence of such absolution scrolls being laid with them. Other times you get ways of dealing with them or keeping yourself safe with holy relics and holy water. So there is a story from an anonymous writer who is called the Monk of Byland of a man with the fabulous name of Snowball who meets a revenant who gives him specific requests. He again is a sinner who needs help to pass on. Snowball goes and talks to a priest. The priest gives him some counsel on how to deal with it. And the next time we see Snowball going to meet the revenant again, as he had promised to do, He's carrying with him holy relics, but he doesn't just stop with that. He draws a circle on the ground and places a relic in each of the four cardinal directions, which seems much more like some kind of magical invocation than a, a, an orthodox theological way of dealing with this sort of thing. And that does seem to give him some protection. There's another account of a man who meets a troop of the walking dead, and we're told explicitly as readers that he is safe because he had attended mass that day and so they couldn't harm him. But that doesn't always seem to protect people. There's another story, again, from Theotmar of Merseburg, of a priest who finds that the walking dead seem to be inhabiting his chapel every night and carrying out mass and singing psalms, but this is nonetheless unsettling, and he's ordered by his bishop to go there to bring in holy relics, to bring holy water, and he does all of that, and the dead respond by burning him alive on the altar. So there's no guarantee that even holy relics and holy water, which are otherwise very effective against supernatural manifestations of most stripes, will give you protection against the undead. And I think part of that is because nobody really understood what they were and so didn't quite know how to deal with it. So sometimes holy water will help you. Sometimes attending mass will help you. Other times, even if you're a priest with holy water who has presumably said mass that day, you can still die. That sounds rather frightening. And indeed, since we are talking about things that are frightening and we're coming on the end here, I would like to ask if our listeners want to read a good medieval ghost story, what would you recommend? I would recommend there's an edition which is quite helpfully titled Medieval Ghost Stories. It's edited and translated by Andrew Joines, J-O-Y-N-E-S. And it's not complete, but an extremely thorough and comprehensive survey of ghost stories in the Middle Ages, including a long section on revenants, including some vampires, as we would call them, and some werewolves. And he's edited them and translated them from a number of different languages, Latin, Middle English, French, and put them together in one volume. And that, I think, is a really useful compilation. I would also recommend The On Tears of Arthur, so that the title is in Middle English, but it's A-W-N-T-Y-R-S. The first half of that story is a really remarkable meeting between Sir Gawain and Guinevere with that ghost that I mentioned before, who was a truly terrifying figure. Excellent. I might give Joins a read. If any of our listeners would be interested in finding a modern movie or TV show that really captures how medievals viewed ghosts or the undead, would you have anything to recommend? 
I would, and it might not be exactly what you would expect. I would recommend The Northman. The Northman, which I loved and which I was apparently one of about 10 people to see in theaters, has an excellent scene in it where our main character has to retrieve a very special sword, and he does so by opening up a barrow, delving into it, at which point the inhabitant of the barrow, a corpse, comes back to life and attacks him. There is a fight. The corpse is decapitated and his head placed between its legs. Now, the movie plays kind of coy with this. It's not entirely clear whether this really happened or whether it's some kind of hallucination or dream or vision. But that sort of episode is really common in the Icelandic sagas, that somebody delves into a barrow, the inhabitant comes to life, there's a battle, the method of disposing of the corpse. And the Northman is similar to most medieval ghost stories in another way, which is that unlike today where we have horror as a very clearly defined genre, you don't really get many medieval works or classical works for that matter that you could call horror in their entirety. Rather, you get stories that have episodes of horror in them. So you might think, for example, even all the way back to the Odyssey or the Aeneid, which both have scenes in which the hero descends into the underworld, and they're really quite terrifying, but they're just one episode in a larger work. The Tears of Arthur, as I mentioned, has this really terrifying ghost in one part of the story, and then the second part of the story is a fairly straightforward tournament between two knights. So usually when you run into ghosts and the supernatural, you're running into them as episodes in a larger work or as something that's more didactic. So the ghast of Guy that I mentioned before, the ghost of Guy, after he appears to his wife and the priest comes and finally gets him to talking, the rest of the text is sort of a theological dialogue about how purgatory works and how one is saved or not saved and that sort of thing. So it's only a small episode of it that really deals with an actual haunted house before it moves on to just a theological discourse. And I think the Northman is true in this way too, in that it's a longer story, which is for the most part not horror, even though it could be quite violent or anything like it, but one episode of it is really quite terrifying and really quite accurate to the sagas in both that the way it's depicted and the fact that it's just one self-contained bit in a longer story. Well, excellent. Now I'm feeling bad that I didn't actually catch it when it was in theaters. It was one of those that I meant to and didn't. Very divisive, but I really enjoy it. I would also recommend, not on the theme of The Living Dead, but Between Two Fires by Christopher, I assume it's Buhlman? I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name. But Between Two Fires does not have The Living Dead in it, but it is a really exciting story of horror in the Middle Ages that does an excellent way of depicting demons as they're often seen, of scenes from medieval romances in the same sort of way you might find them in the original source texts, and updating them and making them really interesting to a modern audience. So it doesn't have revenants in it, but it does have some really frightening demons, and I would recommend that. Well, that sounds excellent as well. And for our readers, if you want to learn more about this sort of thing, I would once again recommend that you check out Alex's Substack. It's only dark. And Alex, I want to thank you very much for coming on this episode. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. If you'd like to discuss this episode, there's a link to our Discord in the description. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.